Hey folks, this is uh, Mark here at DDTV, and we are in Florence, Alabama, inside the lovely home of uh, session man and record producer, Mr. Norbert Putnam. And I Welcome. appreciate you letting us come out and, nice and invade your house. you got quite a place here, so uh, really been looking forward to this interview. Uh, Norbert's got a book out here that I just finished about a week ago. It was a very fast read. It was an awesome book, and I learned all kinds of stuff from this book. Uh, you were a sideman for pretty much everybody from... From Elvis to Roy Orbison to Ray Charles, you name it. And then you went on to produce lots of great records. And uh, I guess first off, just, let's just go back. Let's go back to uh, how it all started for you and, and, and how, we, how we got here today. Oh, well, you're going to love this because you guys are from Memphis, the crew mm -hmm. shooting me here. Yep. And, of course, uh, a young man named Sam Phillips yep. grew up just down Tuscaloosa Street. You know? And uh, if young Sam doesn't leave Florence, Alabama, and go to Memphis and find Elvis. I'm in the insurance business, and you're not interested in talking to me. <laughs> but due to the fact he went over and found Elvis, some kids at my school when I was 15 years old were putting a band together to play early Elvis. I'm talking about Elvis with Scotty and Bill. Yeah. And my father had been a bass player. He actually played on Bill Street when he was a young man. But he couldn't make any money, so he came over here and got into the insurance business, but he still had the bass. And one of the kids at my school remembered seeing the bass. And his name was Danny Cross. Danny said, Norbert, <clears throat> we're putting this band together, and you have to be the bass player. I said, Danny, I don't know anything about playing that thing. Well, no one else in school has one. You're going to have to figure it out. And I said, well, I said, I don't know if I can do this. And he said, Norbert, this Elvis music only has three chords. If you could just find three notes. And I thought, gee, well, I well, bet I could I... find three notes. And that's how I became a musician, yeah. okay? That's how tenuous all of this was, you know? And uh, we, so we play Elvis music, and we're, we're a hit at the sock hops at the gymnasium at the high school, right? That's all good. And a year later, <clears throat> I met a young man here in Florence named Jerry Kerrigan. He and his father uh, were putting together an R&B band because uh, you could play the fraternity parties at Ole Miss and Alabama and Mississippi State. Mm -hmm. That was all in driving distance yeah. from, from Florence, Alabama. And so at the age of 16, I get a fender race, and I graduate from Elvis into James Brown, okay? Anybody can dance to James yeah, Brown. Yeah. So it was Ray Charles then and Dinah Washington. And about that same time, we started doing demos for a local fellow named Tom Stafford. Tom had the most bizarre idea you ever heard. Tom came up to a bunch of us 16-year-old kids one night at the movie theater. He was the manager of the local movie theater. And he said, right here in Florence, Alabama, we're going to write hit songs. We're going to make hit records. And I want you guys to come and help me do demos. And you know, we just looked at him like he was delusional. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't happen in a little town yeah. like Florence, Alabama. But we started going over there. Oh, we asked him. We said, well, can, can you pay us anything? No, but I'll get you in all the movies free. We'll take it. We yeah. said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so after school, we'd go down, and Tom would sign anybody that could make a rhyme. These are the worst songs you've ever heard. Yeah. The people couldn't sing, but then to come to think of it, we're trying to learn to invent original parts on an original song. We were not so hot either, okay? But we got to do that between our the 16th, 17th, 18th year. We were working upstairs, <clears throat> and we're getting ready to go to college. I'm graduating in, uh, from high school. When a young man named Arthur Alexander came up the steps one day. Arthur was the bellhop at the Sheffield Hotel. Looked like a young Harry Belafonte, six feet three, handsome guy, great songs great voice. Yeah. And a light went on. Up, we were recording up over the old city drugstore here, okay? And we started to do demos with Arthur, and a few
few months later, a young man named Rick Hall came up the steps. Right behind him was his buddy, Billy Sherrill. And they were looking to get into the music business. They made a deal with Tom, bought part of his publishing company, renamed it Florence, Alabama Music Enterprises, fame. Billy said he thought he'd go on to Nashville. He did. He, Billy Sherrill became one of Nashville's great record producers, behind closed doors with Charlie Rich, all that stuff. But Rick Hall, the entrepreneur that he was, now he was an old guy. This guy, Rick, must have been 28 years old. He went out, raised the money, rented uh, some warehouse space, an old dilapidated building. He bought minimum of gear. He had two mono tape machines. He had four microphones, three of which were really cheapo, but he found a U-47 mic down in Birmingham, beat up and used. And the next thing I know, we're going out to the warehouse <coughs> to try to make a record. And Rick had, uh, he had walled off a control room. He and his buddies built it. It was totally homemade. The window was from Lowe's or someplace. And there wasn't any intercom, he'd shout at us, yeah. you know? And so we, we, it took us a day and a half. And we recorded three sides of Arthur. And a week later, <clears throat> Rick Hall drove to Nashville with the tape. It took him a while. He was turned down by all the Nashville labels because Nashville labels, you know, were ex extensions of New York companies. Like Owen Bradley ran DECA. Chet Atkins ran RCA, but they only had a budget to promote to country stations. They were saying, this sounds like a, like a, like a New York record. This is, this is like on boardwalk, uh, under the boardwalk, you know. And, and we were more like that kind of a band than we were an R&B band. But he ran into a, a disc jockey named Noel Ball, who was like the Dick Clark of Nashville. He took it to Dot Records, and Dot Records had this kid, Pat Boone, yeah. who gave Elvis a run for the money for about five minutes, <laughs> didn't it? <Yeah. laughs> and that's how we all started to make records. Rick took the money from that, and he made the massive amount, I think someone told me, I'm not sure if this is correct, of $35,000, which would be the equivalent now of probably $400,000. Yeah, yeah. And he, he built the fame studio that I'll show you later on. Okay. okay? And, uh, and, and, and I drop out of college within a year. I had to go over there and make $5 an hour. And the people start coming from Atlanta. Uh, Bill Lowry, the Lowry Music Group, came in. And they had uh, Billy Joe Royal, Joe South. Okay. They had Tommy Rowe, okay? And uh, they start giving us enough business to keep us going. You know? And of course, Tommy, after a year or two, uh, he's got a big record in Europe called Everybody. Hey, everybody. Boy, I have a great voice, Tommy. Yeah, yeah. You can see why I'm a bass like player. <clears throat> so Tommy Rowe is over there in Europe, and uh, I think he was playing Hamburg when the promoter said, uh, you don't have an opening act. There's a local band that's pretty good. You mind if I put them on? Tommy came back from Europe raving about the local band. They had a bizarre name. Well, it was spelled. In I think a, I know where this is going. Well, it was B-E-A-T-L-E-S, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and due to that fact, <clears throat> they had gotten Arthur's first record back in Liverpool before yeah. they even made it to Hamburg, and uh, they had learned some of Arthur's tunes. John Lennon was totally enthralled with Arthur Alexander's voice. Okay. And uh, well, that's sort of how well, we end up opening. They asked uh, Tommy to ask us if the Muscle Shoals rhythm section would be the backup band for what I think was the six opening acts, five or six opening acts. And I didn't understand why they even knew. I didn't know they knew about Arthur at that point. Yeah. And uh, later, uh, I worked with George Harrison 10 years later, and he was telling me all about it. I said, so why did you choose us? And he said, oh, <clears throat> when we found out we were getting to come to America, now we've got a big hit record. We're number one in England. Not so sure we're going to make it in the yeah. big, bad America. <laughs> but we made a list of all of our favorite rhythm sections. We had you guys, we had the Stax rhythm section, we had the Motown rhythm section, and we're gonna book them to open each of our concerts yeah. so we can get their autographs. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you opened up for the Beatles. It was the Beatles' we, first American 
concert. Yeah. So you're the opening act or played. We, well, we were the backup band. Backup band. For, the big, for all the okay. opening acts. Yeah. And you actually, in your book, you talk about actually getting to see the Beatles front and center. Like yes. being pretty much right there where you yes. can touch John Lennon's boots. So, so, so kind of explain to me what it was like seeing the Beatles live because only not many people can say that these days. You know, was it just a sensory overload or what's your, what's your memories of it? Well, first of all, we watched them on the Sullivan Show. Okay. And I'll be honest with you, we sort of, we, we developed a little bit of an ego about the records yeah. we were making. And I remember we sat there and said, well, they don't seem to have any soul. And look at them, we've got the perfectly coughed hair and the little PR cardan suits. And, uh, <laughs> and the songs were rather trite. Think yeah. about it, those early songs. We didn't know that Paul and John Lennon and George were going to become magnificent writers and go deep. These boys went deep, yeah. didn't they? And uh, so we're, th we're thinking, well, they, oh, they were paying us a lot of money. Yeah. It was the most money I was ever given for a gig. Might have been $500, yeah, I don't yeah, know yeah. what it was. But, but we said, we'll take it. And, uh, so we go up there thinking, well, they're not so great, you know. And of course, we, we, got in, we flew up and got in early enough to get in a rehearsal at two o'clock with the six opening acts. They all brought music. And at this point, we're all reading pretty good. And we read through, ran through everything twice. We were really excited because the Righteous Brothers were coming. Yeah. Now those guys are great, okay? And uh, matter of fact, we're on, we're on the airplane from Nashville up to Washington. And it was a Lockheed Electra. And they, they don't fly those anymore. They used to crash a lot, okay? Yeah. But back in the tail, <laughs> they, they had a bar, they had a sofa-like thing in the tail. Yeah. It seated six or eight people. There was a bar back there. And I think we're 22 now, we can buy a drink. <clears throat> so we'd go back. And as soon as we were airborne, we we're going to have a cocktail. So Kerrigan, he goes, I want to propose a toast. And we said, well, sure. Well, what are we drinking to? He said, guys, tonight we will be playing with the Righteous Brothers. And we all clicked our glasses. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> all right, so, so we get up to Washington. We, had, we ran through everything. And, and the Beatles are about to come on to do their sound check. But we haven't had any food. We ran out, got some food, came back just in time to go on. So we didn't hear the sound check. And, and it's in the Washington arena, which was like a big basketball hockey thing, oblong. And as a matter of fact, the stage that night was a boxing platform. Okay, they'd taken the ropes down. So was it in the middle of auditorium? <clears throat> it was, okay. it was in the round. And the only way that we could get from our dressing rooms out to the center, a wedge of policemen would push through the kids. Oh, by the way, the audience, probably average age was 16. Okay. And uh, they were the worst audience I've ever seen, okay? All these great American acts come out, they just want them off, okay? Beatles, Beatles, and the Righteous Brothers are up there doing all these great songs, and it's like they're turning around talking to each other, they're drinking Coca-Cola and eating jelly beans. This is something out of Colonel Tom Parker, right? Right. <laughs> so these kids are overloaded on sugar, and uh, suddenly we're over, and the cops come to take us off. And Briggs and I were playing with some eight millimeter brownie cameras, and we've been shooting important things like airplane wings, <laughs> a monument as the car goes by, and. Uh, so Dave and I said, I said, why don't we stay here? There were no seats, but we, and the, the cops said, well, get out on your knees by the stage. And we shot color footage with no sound. But. So you have footage of this. It, it, the Beatles anthologies, did you ever see that? Yes. All right, there's, there's a little bit of footage from uh, that night. Okay. Look, nobody was so sure they were gonna be great. Yeah. They, they, had a, they ran a black and white copy. There was one black and white camera, I think that shot that, yeah. and uh, somehow or another, the producers got a hold of some of my color film, and it, you'll see in the Beatles anthologies, suddenly there's Ringo and there's color in him, right? yeah. and I can look right up into McCartney's eyes and, and John's eye, and so they were using like two or three snippets, yeah. but they come out and they hit the first chord, okay? And it, it really was like that Max L tape ad, everyone's hair flies back, it was so loud, it was, they were double the decibel level 
So, so it wasn't just the screaming, it was they, their amps, they, they had, were actually a loud band amplification. They had those five foot, six foot tall Vox amps. Okay. With double amplification. We're playing Fenders. Mm -hmm. my, my Fender amp had four 10 inch speakers. Yeah, yeah. Although I built a bass reflex cabinet and put on the back of it. But boy, when that first chord hit, I looked at David and he looked at me. It wasn't distorted, it was clean and it was loud. And they started. And by the third song, I said, you know, these guys aren't all that bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> David goes, man, I think we're wrong about the Beatles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they did 10 songs. They did, the, they did an album of 10 songs. I think they were only 31 minutes. And they turn and they're gone. And everybody thinks they're coming back. They didn't come back. Yeah. Okay. Meanwhile, earlier, when we had come back from dinner, in our dressing room were beautifully engraved invitations to the British Embassy at 11 o'clock to meet the Beatles. <clears throat> Gorgeous calligraphy, you know. We have a midnight flight back. Big Bad Rick Hall has this book for 10 a.m. sessions. Yeah. We owe Rick a lot, but I could have killed him that night, okay? Yeah. So we had to get on a plane and come home. But David said, what did we do with those invitations? Oh, I said, I think we threw them in the wastebasket. Let's get back there and get them. We'll call Rick. We're staying. We, get, we ran over to the big wastebasket. It had been emptied. <laughs> and so that's how close we came to meeting the Beatles. I didn't meet Paul. I met Paul 10 years later and George. And, so you uh, actually had a relationship with George later on and became friends? Yeah, I, I worked with George. He invited me to his house in okay. the mid-80s. I produced an act for him, and we became good friends. George was the sweetest guy in the yeah, world. Yeah, I remember that's what you were telling me. And, 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 and he would come down to the Red Lion, which was a, an old inn on the Thames that I stayed in, and walk up the hill to the house. He would come down at 5 o'clock, park his BMW, walk in. little bar probably held 20 people. Everybody go, there's George, don't look at him. And they go right back. You know? They'd never come over and ask him for an autograph. And he'd say, see, you tell Elvis, he can come here and we can have a drink. These people, the, we English, yeah. we do not bother people. I wasn't so sure if George was right about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but he, he was a great guy. So uh, you were you're at fame. Yeah. So what were, let's say, uh, you're here in Alabama, what were the events that, that led you to uh, eventually move on to Nashville? Because at that point, you weren't no. quite established as a session guy, so it seems oh. like a pretty bold move at well, the time uh, for you. We don't go to Nashville for four years. Okay. One of the early acts to come down here was Tommy Rowe. We would make an album every year with Tommy. His producer was one of Bill Lowry's guys from Atlanta, Felton Jarvis, who later produced yeah. his Elvis on but Felton brought Tommy Rowe here, and uh, he brought a young arranger also from uh, Atlanta. His name was Harold Ray Ragsdale, but he'd made a funny record up in Nashville as uh, Ray Stevens, Ahab the Arab. Ray <clears throat> was a classically educated arranger. He came down here, handed me a bass part I couldn't read in 62. He gave Kerrigan a drum part that was on six days. Yeah. And Jerry said, I'll never play this. And he said, are you telling me none of you can read music? We said it sort of that way. He, he said, well, get around the piano. Ray Stevens sat at the piano. Riggs, this is the piano part in the right hand. Norbert, this is the bass part. Kerrigan, I'll sing the drummer. Do, do, gung, gung, jaka, gung, gung. And he starts, okay? Yeah. And of course, we were looking at it. And he takes us later, he takes us out to uh, a late lunch. And he wanted to talk to us. He said, okay. You guys play with a great feel that doesn't really exist in Nashville. You're younger than Nashville guys. But if you ever wanted to come up there, you're gonna have to get your reading together so I can hand you a chart and you can play it. Yeah. And, and we said, well, could we make any more money up there? <laughs> and he said, what are you making here? Well, we make about $5 an hour. Well, uh, the Nashville guys make $60 every three hours and you can do it four times a day. What? <laughs> so that, that afternoon, no, not, later that week, yeah. I ran down McCorkle's Piano Company and I, I said, do you have any books on playing the bass and how to read music? Oh, I think we've got a few things. Great bass player in New York was named Bob Haggard. Played for Perry Como's show, wrote a lot of great songs. I got Bob Haggard's bass method. And I figured I better learn how to write for horns and strings. You got any orchestration? We have one. 
and it was uh, Russ Garcia. And uh, the funny thing is, Russ's book was so simple, I couldn't understand it. Uh, and within a year's time, David Briggs and I can write horns and strings. And, uh, and by the time we decide to go to Nashville, we really can handle most anything we see. And I worked with Henry Mancini. He came down from Hollywood a few years later in Nashville. Of course, he wrote every note I played on the whole record. No ad living with yeah. Henry, okay? <clears throat> and I said to him one day, I said, you know, Henry, I think you're the greatest orchestrator arranger I've ever heard. And he said, well, thank you, Norbert. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm starting to write a few things for Nashville sessions. Oh, you want to read through the scores with me, he says. And I said, well, because Henry even wrote out his own piano part. Yeah. So he wouldn't forget any little nuance. And he's going back to California for his strings and his brass and his choir. It's an all Nashville section, you know. And uh, he said, well, uh, where did you go to school, Norbert? I said, I didn't, I didn't go to school, but I, I had a book by a guy named Russ Garcia. Henry Mancini, greatest book ever written. <laughs> so right here in Florence, Alabama, yeah. I found what I needed. And by the, by the time I got to Nashville, I could read charts. Okay. You so had to read charts. So you were pretty well established by then by the time you moved to Nashville, right? The only thing I wasn't as good on is the Nashville guys. Okay. And the, the A team was in their mid-30s, hitting their 40s. And they want to bring along a younger section. Yeah. And we didn't know this at the time, but they had voted us in. Those kids from Muscle Shoals and more likely, they, they understood that young artists like to work with young players. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and so we had some very silent mentoring taking place. Harold Bradley played bass guitar when I was playing acoustic mm -hmm. bass or horn. And, uh, and he would talk to me about things. And I'd be on a country date. I never played country music. I said, now Harold, on the rundown, if you hear me do anything stupid, would you, he's sitting right behind me, would you kick me in the shins? Oh, I'll tell you, all right. So we're playing for Oid the first day. And we ran it down. And we're getting ready to, he goes, Norbert, that bar you're doing before we go into letter C, don't play that, play this. And he played a little thing. Oh, okay. I scratched it off. <laughs> he was saving me, you see, because he knew Owen would hate whatever I played. Yeah. Owen told me, look, when you come to play for me, I don't want to hear that Muscle Shoals crap. Don't bring the Fender bass. It's all acoustic bass. And I need you to give me a stack of records by Bobby Moore and all the great national players. Those guys are so good. Floyd Kramer's playing piano. Yeah. Floyd Kramer could give you a little Oscar Peterson, Ray Charles. He was a, he was a great pianist. It was a frightening thing. The fact we made it up there is another miracle. Yeah. <laughs> so, luckily, I worked with J.J. Kale, Tony Joe White, Poke Salad Annie after midnight. So we started to get the younger guys that were coming through, and we got more of the rock stuff. Okay. And so I guess we did help Nashville in a way. So I guess the I think of the '60s and '70s kind of a, a golden age for music. And uh, so you're there recording with all these guys. Did you know it was something special at the time, or were you just sort of just in your moment? Well, the big thing for me was to not get fired and have to go back home yeah. to Muscle Shoals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but... Uh, uh, I mean, did it really feel like something special back then, or you, is it Well, just I have to tell you, I'll tell you what was special about the 60s. The technology, multi-track in those days was two to three track recording. Uh, I was just talking yesterday to Bobby Goldsboro. I played on Honey and Little Green Apples and Pen in Hand. Mm -hmm. And I was playing acoustic bass, and it's all live. And I, I said to Bobby the other day, we, I'm, I'm, I'm writing about him. I'm about to do volume two of music lessons. And I'm going to talk about this little Studio B, RCA B. We had so many people in there, the violinists were playing like this, okay? We had violins, violas, cellos, eight voices woodwinds, a harp, <laughs> two keyboards, and no headphones. The drummers could play so softly. I'm playing my acoustic bass, and I can hear everyone in the room, and I'm among the loudest sounding yeah. instruments in the room. The band would automatically play a level, and we can hear Bobby's 10, 12 feet away. You know? And I, I talked to him about Honey. We ran it down twice, and it was arranged by a guy named Don Twitty. And what Don would write for me, he would write one bar at letter A. And he'd say, Norbert, I feel a pattern like this. If you, if you like it, apply it. Otherwise, do something better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm up there, doom, doom, doom. 
doing them, like a drifter's kind of thing, you know. And uh, we ran it down twice, sounding pretty good. Bob Montgomery said, let's make one the red light comes on. And halfway through, honey, something happened with Bobby. He started to put some emotion in it, and I just felt the room start to get a little louder. And I'm playing bass, and I'm looking in the control room. Chuck Seitz, the engineer, has got his finger on the master fader, and the two-track is starting to slab. Yeah. He didn't leave himself enough headroom. And he's talking to Montgomery. He doesn't know whether to pull it down or just pray that the magnetic tape will compress. So we, we did that take. Montgomery goes, hey, Bobby, that was great. We're going to check the ending and see if it compressed properly. If it distorted, we're going to have to do it again. Great take. Yeah. It, did, it, it compressed. It was beautiful. So Bobby got it his first take. <laughs> and in that session, in the next three hours, we do three other songs. We take two 10-minute breaks on the hour. But this band will get it, and the singer will get it in three to five takes. So it was, uh, it was fun. Yeah, it was yeah. great fun. So we've talked about Muscle Shoals. We've talked about Nashville. Uh, Let's talk about Memphis. Let's talk about Elvis. Okay. Uh, I know you played Elvis. on, what, about 122 recordings? That's and what they say. That's what they say. Over seven years. And what I've always been curious about is what was Elvis like in the studio? I mean, was he, was he kind of in charge, or did he leave that to the producer? Or, uh, like, like, how much input did he have in those sessions? So you, you kind of have the inside there. I just I kind of want to know what the dynamic was. Well, let me tell you about Presley. It was June, I think, of 1970. And Felton Jarvis called me. Oh, by the way, I'm now producing records I've announced I'll not take any more recording sessions. Yeah, yeah. And Felton says, Putt, that's my nickname. Uh, uh, Putt, listen, you, I want you to play for Presley. You know, he's been over to Memphis. He loved Tommy Cogbill and those guys. And, but he doesn't want to go back. And he said, find me a section that can play more like the American guys. And it's got to be you Muscle Shoals guys. So I got you and Kerrigan and Briggs. And, and we're bringing in James Burton from the live show. You know, James is great. Guy. Yeah. And so I'm thinking, so I'm going to play for the king of rock and roll, you know. And I was the guy responsible for my career, you know. And uh, I remember going over to RCA that night. And, it, and by the way, I have to tell you, uh, I had a morning session somewhere that day, so I'd gotten up early. But I go over at 6 o'clock. We're booked 6 to 9, 10 to 1 a.m. I didn't know this until 8 o'clock. Elvis came every night at 8 o'clock. He was two hours late. And when he marched in... RCA. He was wearing a cape and carrying a, a silver-crested lion's head walking cane with ruby <laughs> eyes. Yeah. And I thought, this guy's really a star, you know. And he took the cape off, swirled around, someone caught it, you know, pitched it, you know. And I thought, how are we going to be in for this? You know, I, th I thought we we're all going to be kneeling at his feet. And he came over and plopped himself down on the tile in the middle of the studio because the chairs are all... Are, there wasn't enough chair. He said, everybody, come over here. And he smiled. Everybody, some of the guys who worked with him before, yeah. and they ran over, and we all flopped down. He goes, i got some of the craziest stuff to tell you about the fans. And he, sucker, and he sat there to make himself small, I think, okay? Yeah. And for an hour and a half, he regaled us with great, funny stories about things that happened to this guy, Elvis. He would actually talk about himself in the third person. And Do you remember one story in particular? Well, there were many stories, but I can tell you what I thought. I sit there after about an hour, and we're all relaxed. I'm looking at him. This guy's just like all the kids I grew up with. Yeah. You know? It was, it was cheeseburgers, girls, and cars. <laughs> okay? yeah, yeah. You know? And now he's talking about his fans, and, uh, and he's going on and on. And it's 9.30. Well... Felton finally came out at 10 o'clock and said, uh, Elvis, now, <clears throat> you know, we, we got to get to work. He said, no. You remember you talked, you wanted to do uh, about doing a second Christmas album. I got that on the agenda. Oh, and we need to do a second gospel album. And, oh, you wanted to do that album of uh, country classics. Great record, by the way, if you ever yeah. hear him sing country. Oh, and we've got seven new pop songs. And I'm thinking, that's 37 sides. We only have five nights, six hours a night. And the king said, well, boys, I guess we need to get at it. And he got up. But he was like, Felton's the guy running the show. Yeah, he, yeah. And he gets up. He says, so what do you want to do first, Felton? <laughs> and they came out and played a demo. We grabbed a legal pad and took it down, you know. 
And I thought at the end of that evening, oh, by the way, we were getting five, six, seven tracks done. We played it till the king got it. And he had a long cable. He got right in front of us. And he had the lyric sheet. And he would lead us through with his dynamics. And he was geared up. When that red light came on, he was like a halfback. Give me the ball. I'm going to score. Okay, so right? he recorded holding the microphone. Yeah. Just like he does on stage. And he got in front of us. So we, when he got excited, we got excited. Yeah. And when he took it down, that's the reason that music worked so well. Uh, he, I don't think he liked overdubbing with Chip Small. Yeah. You see? And, and boy, was he quick. So he was uh, literally just putting on a show there in the studio. Yeah, it was, and, and that's the way he had always recorded. Yeah. That's the way he recorded in New York and L.A. And uh, we got 35 completed tracks in five nights. We'd, we literally wouldn't start until the end of the year because he wants to come in. And I just thought this guy really understands how to work with people because yeah. he got us relaxed and comfortable with him before he ever attempted anything. And he was so sweet to us. A lot of times he'd get it on the first take. Now, we're out there talking, and James is saying to David, we, we need another take, because I could take the intro, and you could do the chorus. And we're, and we're moving things around, you see? Yeah. And uh, I don't know, second or third song, we, we all gathered together. So we've got to work out a system to get more takes. So we decided we'd each take turns. And if it was my turn, if he played it back more than once, he's thinking about keeping that first take. And yeah. he was pretty darn good. Yeah. Now, it's my turn. I go on there and stand beside him. He said, hey, Pot, what's going on? I say, hey, King. I didn't call him King the first night. By the end of the week, we were calling him, calling him King irreverently. Hey, King. <laughs> and he'd say, what is it? You okay? He, no, he was just great. I said, do you think you could do one more for me? Well, well sure, he said. He felt, hold everything. What do you want to do? I said, well, I've got a thing I want to do in the chorus. And David and James, oh, let's do it, he says. He rush out there. Ah, you guys want to see me do it again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he never once said, as most artists would, well, I got mine, why don't you get yours? He would do it four or five times for us. Yeah. Until we were happy. So you asked me what he was like. I never had an artist I was as comfortable with as Elvis Presley. That's great. Now, I'll tell you, as the years went by, I wanted, the other thing is, in 1970, this guy's in flawless, sculptured. His, his body's chiseled. There's not an ounce yeah. of fat. And he's feeling good. And he was, he was sharp. He was focused. And I, I'd play with him once or twice a year. He'd come down. And in 73, I got a call to come to Memphis, record at Stax with him. And uh, we got 16, 17 tracks down at Stax. But I noticed he'd started to add a little yeah. punch here, you know. And uh, didn't seem to be quite as focused. And I watch him over the next four years deteriorate. And uh, was it Priscilla's leaving? I don't know. But uh, I think it had some devastating effect yeah. on the man. And uh, maybe he, I know he had a great relationship with Linda Thompson, and she's a wonderful person to stabilize someone. Uh, he, uh, none of us wanted him to die. Yeah. And you know, a month or two before he dies, uh, I went down to Graceland and filled in. Jerry Chef was to play all the sessions, the Jungle Room sessions, and they had to leave, and I came in, and I was doing Dan Fogelberg in San Francisco. I played on two or three tracks. But he was, he was large. And I was back at my office a few months before he died, and Felton called me. Norbert, the other night, someplace, we were, he said, we're recording all his concerts in multi-track. And he went over to the piano, and he pushed Tony Brown off, and he sat down and played that old Righteous Brothers tune on Chain Melody. Chain Melody, yep. And Pot, he says, he killed it. The voice was all there. Now, I've got the multi-track. Can you come over to RCA in the morning? The band just stood there because they hadn't rehearsed it. They didn't know where it was going. And so I've got his piano, and he made a couple piano mistakes. Bobby Ogden was coming at 10 o'clock. So the next morning I go over to RCA, and Bobby's got the headphones on, and he's listening to the time of Elvis's playing, and Bobby played it with all the right notes. Yeah. And even put that classical thing at the end of it. And uh, it was time for me, so I plugged my bass in. And I was in the control room, because I'm just going to listen over the monitors. <clears throat> I said, Felton, how is the king? He took a deep breath, and he said, Pot, he goes, uh, it's not good. He said, uh, 
he's gained a lot of weight. And I said, well, is it just obesity? Because we can talk about that. Well, he's been known lately to eat a dozen eggs for breakfast and a pound of bacon and 12 biscuits. And one day, he said, he binged on banana splits. Every hour he's eating banana splits. I said, well, we can fix that, can't we? <laughs> and he said, but you can't tell him anything. He, he, he's, he's at the point now that if anyone says anything, they're likely to get fired. Yeah, yeah. You know? And so I put my little bass part on. And this story's in my book. You know, I, I took my kids to Hawaii on vacation. And while we were on Kauai, I, got, I was sent down to the general store in Hanalei to pick up some stuff for the kitchen. I got in my rental car, and they're playing an old Presley classic. Yeah. And I thought, you never hear this on America. I'm going to call the jock and thank him. Do you know they played him all over the world? Yeah. But they didn't play him in America. We had something called payola, and RCA wasn't paying. But uh, so I'm on my way to Honolulu, and I cross that little bridge going into Honolulu, and another Presley classic comes on. Now, I'm definitely calling this yeah. guy, but suddenly I'm in front of the general store. I park under a coconut tree and turn off the radio, and I rush in, and I'm grabbing milk, bread, eggs. I'm standing in line with, behind a college kid with a backpack. And, and just as I'm about to, to go up next, he leans over and he's got his things and he said to the cashier, he says, hey, you hear about old Presley? And the cashier goes, no, what? Checked out. <gasps> Checked out. I just I got some money. I threw it at the guy and ran to my car and turned it on. This morning at such and such time, or afternoon, I can't remember when it was, Elvis Presley was pronounced dead at yeah. the hospital. And I sat there and just cried like I'd lost a dear friend. And I had lost yeah, a dear you friend, had, you yeah. see? And I thought, I, you know what you think? Could I have saved? What if I'd said yeah. something? I didn't, none of us did enough, you see? And uh, we now know that probably no one at that point, he was too far gone, you know. But uh, it was devastating. Yeah. And uh, and when, and I go to Graceland, you know, at least once a year, and and I, and I think about him, and uh, and what a good guy he was. Yeah. He treated us, the rhythm section, like we were the stars, and he would come around and say, "Great, you know, you guys are great." That's great. <laughs> yeah. 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 Elvis Presley. He, he, I put him, I put him at the top. I, I, I ran into Priscilla. Ten years ago, Cheryl and I were in a restaurant in Memphis, and she came over, and we hadn't talked. She came to Nashville once with him in 72, 73. And we were talking about Elvis, and I said, I want to tell you something, Priscilla, because at this point in time, I was teaching at the university down in Delta State, and a lot of people would say, anywhere I'd go, they'd say, of all the people you worked with, who was the greatest? You know? <clears throat> and I said, Priscilla, I always say, up here, we had Elvis Presley, and down here we had everyone else. Yeah. And a tear rolled out of her eye. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's a good lady, you know. See, that's uh, another thing in your book I want to touch on yeah. is, uh, I guess, in the late 60s, early 70s, you uh, started your own studio, Quadraphonic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's kind of when you got into producing, right? Yeah. And that ended up being kind of like ground zero for this whole new sort of outlaw movement in Nashville. I just thought that whole story there was kind of fascinating. So just kind of tell us a little bit about well, that. Well, David Briggs and I, uh, <laughs> we've been playing sessions for 10 years. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and one night at dinner, we decided that it was too much hard work. Once you were a, a top Nashville guy, you would leave home at 9 in the morning. You would show up at the studio and play 10 to 1 load up your gear, didn't have cards in those days, run to another studio, two to five, get a drink and a sandwich, go to another studio, six to nine. And about two, three nights a week, I'd have a 10 to 1 a.m., a four-session day. And you know, we, we were young, we were 24, yeah. 25, but it, was, it, was, it took a toll on the family. My children did not see me until Saturday because they would be gone to school by the time I got up at yeah. eight. And my wife would either see me at 10 in the evening or 2 a.m. And so David and I were having dinner one Saturday night, and, and my back is hurting too. I'm playing acoustic bass and fender bass. And, and David said, you know, if we could write a couple of hit songs a year, 
we wouldn't have to do any of this. <laughs> you see, this goes to show you, you're young, you, do, you give anything to be able to do it. Now you're doing it, you're looking for a way out, right? Yeah. And uh, Henry said, well, it can't be that difficult. These country songs, anybody could write these songs, you know? <laughs> it's always about a bottle of whiskey and a pickup truck and something or another, you know? And uh, David said, let's buy an old house and build a demo studio and let's start spending one day a week just writing. And within a year's time, we'll have mailbox money coming. Yeah. So we'd had a few glasses of wine when we come up with this gig. But we buy the old house, and we start building the little studio in there. When Elliot Mazur, who's producing a lot of people, he was bringing, he brought down Linda Ronstadt, and I've just been the arranger on Linda's first record. A song called Long, Long Time came out of that. And he did the Harvest record by Neil Young, too. Right? Yes, but not yet. Not yet. And he's standing there saying, I love this building, I love your, we took, we took the two front parlors, much like Thimbleton, the house we're in, and uh, built the control room out on the front porch. And he said, if you put in a multi-track, I'll bring some major acts. And we said, you what? I will, he said. Because all it was was a 19.5 house, okay? And so he actually joined in with us and put up some of the money, I think. And, uh, and we put in a 16-track setup and a modern console and uh, sure enough, he wasn't the first to come in. My friend Chris Christopherson, I helped him do his first demos, and so did David, uh, when he didn't have money to pay us. Mm -hmm. And he's just talked Joan Baez into letting me produce her record. And uh, the first record that came out of there was Joni. We did the night they drove old Dixie down. And then Elliot brings in um, Neil Young to do Harvest, biggest record of the year. Yeah. And there's another guy I have to mention. Johnny Cash was instrumental in all of this stuff because Johnny has a network television show, primetime, and it's not a hillbilly show. He's got Derek and the Dominos, Linda Ronstadt, you know, and uh, Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, mm -hmm. right? Well, Joni Mitchell wasn't there, but we had Neil Young, James Taylor is in town, and Linda. Well, Elliot goes down to the bar at the hotel and corners him. And Neil says, well, I'll come over and do something. And James says, well, I could play banjo on that song about the old man or something. You know? <laughs> and, and Linda says, I'll sing backups. And they went in there on the weekend and started Harvest. Yeah. Okay? And, uh, and I don't know at what point he did keep me searching for a heart of gold, but it was, uh, it was similar, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I think it was the biggest record he ever made. And then the next year, we became the oasis for pop rock folk. Okay. Next year, uh, Dobie Gray comes in and does Drift Away. Biggest record of that yeah. year, you know. And in between time, Joe Walsh and James Gaines there, Grand Funk Railroad. So these are like non-Nashville recordings happening in Nashville. We didn't have any country people coming over there. Yeah. Well, they thought we were a bunch of hippies anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so yeah, tell us about uh, what you're doing today. What you have, are you still uh, producing well, records, playing bass, or what you doing these well, days? Well, due to the success of the book, I'm doing a lot of uh, speaking events. Okay. I'm doing corporate events. Uh, going out to Amarillo to do uh, a Dan Fogelberg tribute. In Amarillo, every year, they have two nights of Fogelberg tribute artists, and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for the local cancer fund, prostate cancer fund. And so I'm going to go out there and talk about my book, I'm going to sit in with the band and play yeah. one of the bass parts I did for Dan. So i got to get in there and start practicing. Because yeah. <laughs> I don't know, it's been 40 years since yeah. I played those parts. You know. And uh, that, that'll be fun. And uh, I spoke at a university up in Burlington recently, in Vermont. And uh, we're about to go up to uh, Toronto. I'm doing a band from Ottawa okay. uh, called Tribe Royal. And they're great. A bunch of young kids like the Beatles. I'm working with my old pal, um, uh, Mac Davis. Okay. You know, who wrote all those, he wrote four songs for Presley. And they gave him a plaque for 250 million sales on those four songs in the compilations area. And then I'm working with a young guy from Nashville named Randy Moore, and uh, he's an old friend. So yeah, speaking of today, so what is your take on the music industry today? It seems like it's sort of a different world with, with downloading and streaming and Spotify and no. iTunes. Uh, no. What's your take on all that? Well, progress always leads to something positive, mm -hmm. I think. And we've had a lot of negative uh, issues with uh, royalty payments. When we all 
made contracts years ago to produce. It was for vinyl discs. You know, when I was doing Jimmy Buffett. And uh, then, then we had to renegotiate for CDs. But we didn't get to renegotiate for Spotify and all the downloads. And they sort of, they stole a lot of money for us. But even Washington's trying to help us out. Yeah. And those royalties are getting better. But the other thing that's happened, digital technology has now reached the point to where it surpasses anything we ever did analog-wise. Analog had a certain gloss to it, but it didn't tell the truth. It sort of changed the sound in a glossy way. We were able with digital to absolutely record something and play it back over and over again without any loss of quality. You know, we could never do that with analog. Even the vinyl disc, we had to cut everything below 50 cycles or the needle would jump. Yeah. So now we can put f full bass on CDs and, and digital. So I'm, I'm excited about the technology, as we are with everything. These cameras that are shooting us today, yeah, they're not yeah. using film, you know? And uh, we have to be positive about the future. That's kind of where I see it. Because history will point this out, you know? So what do you think about this whole resurgence of vinyl? Because vinyl's kind of come back. It's sort of a big thing again. Well, I went out and bought a turntable. Mm -hmm. And I was disappointed when I played the disc. Yeah. You see, when I would, back in the 70s, uh, my master tape machine, we'd spend hours getting the top and bottom precisely where we wanted it. But when I took it to mastering, they had to chop the bottom off a bit to keep the needle from jumping. Gotcha. And then <clears throat> there's a physics problem. It's like, it's like the, the analogy would be a frozen lake and 12 skaters arm in arm. Yeah and they're gonna skate in a circle. The guy out there is flying at 100 miles an hour and the guy here is moving like this. Well, every one of them, as it came in, was moving at a slower pace. As the stylus works its way in, it's the, the groove is slowing down, slowing down, yeah. slowing. And by two inches into it, you're losing top end of cymbal crashes, the crack of the snare, and by the time you get to the fourth or fifth uh, song, it doesn't resemble a master rig. But the bass stays. The bass stays, yeah. So, bass players, we still have a job. <laughs> <laughs> so, there's some good in it, yeah. yeah. Well, I got one last question. It's probably out of sequence, so this question is more for myself, yeah. personally, okay? So, uh, uh, one of my very first records, actually my first record ever, was this record right here. And this is the exact record, by the oh, way. Oh. I pretty much learned how to play bass to this record, okay? It's even broken. You can see how it has the same label on both sides. It was, there was an error to it. But, uh, yes, but I remember growing up as a kid, looking at who played bass on this, and it was, there you are right there. Ah, no bear Pumon. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so uh, <laughs> what do you remember about this session? And uh, what uh, can you tell me about it? What was Tony Joe White, White, Tony Joe White like in the studio? Well, we met him 15 minutes before the tape roll. Okay. He walked in with uh, uh, Billy Swan, was the designated producer. Yeah. And uh, so he comes in with Billy, and we'd already been told that he's this Louisiana soulful guy. Well, we thought this would be great. And the rhythm section was the Muscle Shoals guys, me mm -hmm. and Kerrigan and Briggs, along with Chip Young might have been there. But you know, T Tony Joe played all the lead stuff on his guitar. Yeah. And uh, so he just sat down and played us Poke Sal and Annie. <clears throat> and um, you know, the Nashville guys we always sketch it out. We're all legal pets. We're not, we're not going to depend on memory yeah. or anything. And we would sketch out the changes in numbers and then we would indicate any syncopations, scratch out five lines and write in the syncopation, yeah. point to the number. And we'd say, do you want to play it down? Yeah. And we just start playing. No one said anything about what we would play. And um, I think I just played eighth notes, didn't I? Dun, dun, Pretty dun, much. Dun, 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 dun. You had a few little hot licks on uh, uh, Don't Steal My Love. Oh, I remember, and, I and the chorus. Mm -hmm. On the chorus, I was playing. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> I know him, I know him, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, you know, uh, I, we did four songs in it, three hours. Okay, we didn't spend much time on it. We probably did three or four takes on poke salad and grab some coffee and did another one, okay? And, uh, and later on, my friend Bergen White came in and wrote that horn chart, and uh, 
and I sort of forgot about even doing this yeah. thing until it came out. And it was, and Fred Foster called me one day. He said, "You won't believe this, but it's number one in France." <laughs> really? And I think it went on to be number one for like six months, seven yeah. months, eight months. I remember I said to Fred, "Well, why do you think it was such a hit in France?" He goes, well, they're still trying to figure out what he's saying in the first part, yeah. where he's mumbling yeah. about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. But he, he writes Rainy Night in Georgia. Uh, he's just a talented genius of a guy. And, and we, Elvis went on to record what Pope Saladani up became a staple oh, in his yeah, live show. Yeah, I'm sure that yeah. helped a little bit. And Jerry Sheff played more stuff on that. Do you ever hear what Jerry Sheff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Jerry was a jazz player. Mm -hmm. And he was up there just killing it. I went out to play the big screen show, and I said, Are you, you're going to expect me to play what Jerry should yeah, do, yeah. and I haven't touched the bass in 40 years. <laughs> it, it, was, uh, it was not easy. Yeah. But I have to tell you something about Polk Sally. He didn't say anything when we cut it, and of course it's a big hit. And Bob Beckham, who had his publishing, was in the controller. And 10 years later, Bob and I were having a drink somewhere. We were talking about, it. wasn't it great that Polk Sally did so well? He said, I didn't tell you this, but uh, when, we're, when we cut it, Tawny Joe came over, and he leaned down to me, and he said, Bob, don't you think that bass player is a little too busy? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I told him, I think he'll be all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. He was right. I was a little too yeah. busy, wasn't I? <laughs> I love it. Man, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you, out. Mark. Absolutely. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.